BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you to earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Navy Federal also offers equity loan options to help you get the funds you need to consolidate high interest debt, work on home improvements, or cover any of life's big expenses. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, their members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. Here at How to Money, we're always encouraging listeners to think about some of the different ways they can earn some money on the side to reach their financial goals. And guess what? While you're away, your home could also earn extra income. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. Yeah, hosting is a lot easier than you might think, and you don't need to Airbnb a whole house. You can just host your extra spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. You, uh, you kind of jumped the gun on that one. I barely had time to swallow my little taste of beer there. Time to get this train rolling, My buddy. mouth was, <laughs> it was still, still watering. But this is an Ask How to Money Monday episode for folks out there. We've got five listener questions lined up for you. A listener is asking about diagnosable money disorders, whether or not, Joel, you in particular, whether or not you've been, <laughs> you've discovered that. It probably sounds really confusing, but we will get to that one here in a that second. That question itself is a HIPAA violation. I just want to know. <laughs> I don't think we should be taking you have to you can sign off and allow us to talk about okay. it right it's it's but it's your right <laughs> i guess that's is true. that how it works i'm not totally yeah, probably. sure but somebody else is wanting to know what he should be doing with this unsustainable housing market the way prices have been going and another listener is wanting to make the most of a 1031 exchange what is that and, and how does it pertain to real estate we'll uh, we'll get to that here in a second oh. and we'll answer two additional questions as Ten, well 1031 exchange one of those things not a lot of people know about but as a real estate investor if you're you know planning on swapping properties, it can save you a ton of money. We'll discuss that along, along with a lot of other things on this episode. right, man. But so my in-laws, I was chatting with them and they recently bought a new car. They, uh, they're rich. So they bought a... <laughs> they bought a In this they market? Bought a, bought a brand new car. They must be loaded. No, they, they are retired and they thought, you know what? It's time to get us a, a nice vehicle that's never like, been owned by anybody else in the world. Were you like, that could have been my inheritance. <laughs> no, I'm... Um, hey, one day, I, we might be driving that car. That's I don't know. True. We'll see how long Hand this thing car. lasts on the road. But they got uh, a brand new uh, Kia Sportage. And, dude, that thing is, I'll say, it's pretty stinking sweet. It's like a hybrid kind of SUV. Okay. You know, it's, it's like one of those, one of those new types of cars. it's not a hybrid, right? No, I'm sorry. No, yeah, it's not a, an, an actual hybrid. It's like a crossover. That's okay. what I meant to say. But um, they've really enjoyed it. But what they haven't... Well, Kias are so hot right now. They are. They uh, are. The yeah, we talked like about too, that with, <laughs> with the car dealership guy, uh, the Telluride in particular. Mm-hmm. His, I think that was the beginning of Kia just changing their image, changing their brand. And that's what I keep telling my in-laws, specifically my mother-in-law, is I'm curious to see if in 10, 15 years from now, if folks are going to look at Kias in the same light, the same way that we look look at Hondas and Toyotas. Yeah. I think they already kind of are. They, it, it seems like they're getting that way. For I sure. remember my brother-in-law had a Hyundai like 20 years ago and Hyundais were trash. They were just like, nobody respected them. They were so cheap. They had these 10-year warranties. They're because, like, why, why would you buy a Hyundai? Instead, right. you should get yourself a Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the only way they could convince people to buy Hyundais was to have this ridiculously incredible yeah. warranty. And it, all of a sudden, like over time, Hyundai, Kia, they both just started to churn out better and better they're cars. They're their and game. Now they're, yeah, they rival but, some of the 
better car manufacturers out there. Yeah, but that being said, they haven't upped their game enough to for my in-laws to not have to take that thing back in to the dealership multiple times now. Uh-oh. Uh, they've had some issues with the electronics. Things aren't working the way that they're supposed to, obviously. But uh, yeah, so this raises the question then, is it a good idea to avoid the first model year after a car gets revamped, basically? That's been an That's, aphorism for a long time. It's something that you hear. Uh, and so I actually dug into the, the data, dug into the facts. And if you look at that, it actually shows. So J.D. Power, they've got like a, a vehicle dependability study. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the past multiple years, actually, the first model year, it doesn't perform any better or any worse when it comes to that particular make and model of is, the vehicle. Why has that been a thing then for so long, I wonder? I think people just back in the day, I think it was more of a thing, but cars today, um, and the research kind of points this out, cars just get tested so thoroughly. I yeah. mean, they, they drive it like above 12,000 feet for so many miles, and they uh, take it to Death Valley, and basically they're trying to break the car, and yeah. there is substantial testing that there truly shouldn't be anything like that. It doesn't mean that if you were <laughs> to buy a new car, that the, anecdotally, there will be instances where something might go wrong with a vehicle. But generally speaking, that's not necessarily something you should worry about. Don't let that be what keeps you from buying a new vehicle. Or even when Um, you're buying a used vehicle, like going back and being like, oh, well, this was the model crossover year 2013. Maybe I shouldn't go for that. Maybe I should look for a 2012 or a 2014 Mm -hmm. instead. Well, that's a a really really good thing to know. And and like you said, you can look back at stuff like J.D. Power or you can look at Consumer Reports. Those reliability rankings are are far superior than just kind of the first model year, the truthy, (laughs) non-truthy. Yeah. sort of way of thinking. Kind of the gut reaction or the stories that you hear. Yeah. Uh, and actually, and you can always, especially when you're looking at used vehicles, uh, I think it's the National Highway Institute or whatever, but there's a website where you can go and you can enter in your VIN number and it'll tell you some of the different recalls that are outstanding on that particular vehicle. So we can make sure to link to that in the show notes yeah. for this episode. Good resource for sure. Yeah. And by the way, it is always helpful to, to do a Carfax report or to run some sort. Of, I think there's actually oh, yeah. a free one too. Maybe we'll, I'll find that and link to that in the show notes as well. I think there's a, a free resource where you can kind of find out the vehicle's history, which is just all, that's help, more helpful to know than it, whether it's the first model year or not, because you sure. don't know what, what has happened to this specific car over its history. And, you know, those are imperfect, but they're still helpful. But, Matt, let's uh, totally mention the beer we're having on this episode. This one is called Pyrotechnic Pleasantries. It's by Sour Cellars out of California, out of Rancho Cucamonga, which is just a fun, <laughs> fun city to say. That's not a real city. It, it truly is. That's And funny. I want to visit, <laughs> just so I can say Rancho Cucamonga while I'm there. I love it. But, yeah, this is Rancho a... Rancho Cucamundo? Cucamonga. Munga. Yeah. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> well, uh, this is a beer I picked up when I was in California a couple months ago. And did you? You didn't actually go to Sour Cellars. No, no. Actually, the guy at the beer store he recommended it. Highly recommended it. So I'm super excited to to check this one out today on the show. But let's get on to yeah. listener questions. And uh, if you have a question you want to uh, Matt and I to tackle on an upcoming episode, just go to howtomoney.com/ask. You'll find the simple instructions there, so you can record a voice memo, send it our way. Hopefully, we can. Take it in a couple weeks on the show. But Matt, let's get to our first question of this episode. This one is about whether or not I'm diagnosably insane. (laughs) Hey there, this is Keith from the Oregon coast again. And I've got a question for you, Joel, about how your relationship to money might have changed since your wife has started going to counseling school. My girlfriend is in counseling school and it's sort of brought out a lot of questions about my relationship to money and insecurities I have around money, why that came about, and her diagnosing me with lots of psychological issues related to money. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious if you've had the same experience, if it's been a net positive for you. Let me know your thoughts. I think this is the first time we've had a question directed at a specific host. So Joel, shall you take this away? My palms are sweating. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm just going to kick back. Let's skip this one. Let's move on to the next one. Completely relax. Are you feeling a little nervous? Keith, why'd you do this to me? You're on the hot seat. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm feeling the pressure a little bit right now. So I'll answer for Joel. He... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is always what you want to hear yeah. when someone asks you a question about He's a freak of nature. Uh, it hasn't changed your relationship to money, but it's completely changed your relationship to your wife. You, you two aren't seeing eye to eye anymore. <laughs> right, exactly, yes. She, no, she hasn't diagnosed me yeah. with anything formally because I won't allow her because she's not actually a licensed professional at this point. She's <laughs> just in school, okay? No, I'm kidding. But uh, it, this is actually a really good question, and it's it, it's fascinating that Keith is going through 
the same thing I'm going through to a certain extent. And it, it's, it's helpful to hear that I'm not alone, I guess. And, uh, yeah. And she's, she's really kind of halfway through her education and she's learned a lot. And I'm like, it's honestly her going to, to school to become a licensed therapist. She's going to become a marriage and family therapist has been really good for our relationship. And, uh, although not always easy <laughs> as, as Keith has figured out, it's definitely opened up a can of worms at, at some, at, at different points, different, fun, interesting conversations, and also difficult conversations, but overall a net positive. And, and I would say it's been good for me. It's been good for us. It's been good for our kids, uh, in a lot of ways to see her dedication, to see her excel at something yeah. that's just really totally. demanding. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it I think it's also fun to watch because it just very much feels like she was born to do this, which it, it's so fun for me to get to support her in that. Endeavor. She's like at the top of her class, right? Like literally Straight she A's, is baby. complete, not only getting A's, but she's like acing tests. Yeah. She was sharing that with Kate and I the other night at dinner. And we're, I was like, holy crap, you're cr- you're going to be really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure <laughs> not all- just from a textbook standpoint, but so much of like the testing involves yeah. actual like the kind of counseling work it's not it's just not like, like scantron it's work. not yeah. yeah it's not rote memorization right no like the, one of the classes she's taking this semester it's it's literally people pairing off and diagnosing each other with stuff essentially <laughs> and working through issues so it's like doing the practice of being a therapist so yeah. why don't they do that with like heart surgery and uh, that's a good question <laughs> yeah <laughs> you are my alive you, cadaver you two go off well, they do. And, got uh, cadavers that's true well not on each other though it's not like yeah. if you and i were going to med school that we operate on each well, other there's a reason <laughs> for that uh, although we, we when we were in edinburgh recently we learned some interesting stuff about cadavers do you remember that with uh that oh yeah people that's... were digging up bodies in mm-hmm. order to sell mm-hmm. them to the school in edinburgh and that's why they've got those grates over uh over the Plots, over the grades, or the yeah. Plats or whatever. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. All right, so crazy stuff. Let's continue talking about this for just a second. I will say that it, I've grown a lot as Emily's been in grad school, like, and that I've done more self-examination. And I do think that uh, an unexamined life is kind of boring. That you have to kind of do some of this work in order to grow as a person. So she's helped me do that to help help me unearth uh, different things over the past couple of years. Which, like I said, has been kind of a mixture of like fun, hard, and and enlightening, and and uh, it's not always easy to do that hard work, but I think it's valuable. I, I think uh, leaving those stones unturned isn't helping anybody, and not recognizing maybe some of those patterns that lead you to a certain place sure. isn't healthy. So, uh, yeah, growth as an individual, growth as a couple. But when it comes to specifically like money issues. I don't know. I think I had actually done a lot of the hard work on that already. I think there are other things that we've probably unearthed more than than issues that I have with money. Because honestly, if you've been listening to this podcast for a number of years, you probably heard our philosophy shift, morph, and change, and grow, and and hopefully become a little bit freer in some ways. I think Matt, like we've talked about my journey uh, with frugality and extreme frugality at times, and I think I've grown a lot in that way. Uh, I think a lot of what I experienced as in childhood and uh, my parents' relationship with money and to each other about money was difficult uh, and informative, mm-hmm. but I've also had to like grow past that because I think I, I had more like a too, too secure of an attachment to money or too insecure of an attachment to money, I guess. And so I've developed, hmm. um, been able to kind of work through, I think, uh, some of those yeah. issues slowly but surely. It's not something that you do overnight, snap of a finger or anything like that. Sure. But it's, it's, I think some of the conversations Emily and I've had have you know, not necessarily any diagnosis. I knew I was weird and I knew that impacted me, but definitely has helped me work through some of those things even more. Yeah. Well, I like what you said about working through it too, because I think it is like, yes, it is important to do the work, right? And to dig in and hot phrase right now, figure out what, yeah, figure out what it is that has impacted you. But simultaneously, I think it's important to make sure that you're not completely living in the past. You are not necessarily like, yeah, you, you shouldn't be defined by your previous actions. What are you doing today? What are you going to do in the future as you're moving forward? And this isn't to say, bury your past, ignore those <laughs> feelings. Like, no, it is worth... Shove it deep down. <laughs> it is worth uh, paying attention to that and seeing truly how it has impacted, specifically how it has impacted how you view things, I guess, in the past. And But then to take that information and then move forward. Like, we've all yeah. seen folks who, they just have certain hangups, uh, different things that have happened to them in their lives, and they just can't seem to get past that. And 
tends to come up in conversations as like an excuse for why they're choosing to not move forward. And I think that eliminates a whole lot of agency that we have as individuals to make the best of what it is that we've learned from those mm-hmm. hard, very hard and p- painful at times experiences. Yeah, but I think we lose some of our agency if we don't do the work of seeing where we've come from and how it's influenced us. Because right? you're just flying blind almost. Yeah, like exactly. you, you don't understand how it was that this how the plane was put together that you're flying. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, you're treating symptoms instead of the root problem, right? Sure. The root cause. Yep. And so sometimes you got you really do have to go back and look at some of that stuff. And it, it makes me think about how we talk about money here on the show. Numbers and math are obviously important when we talk about money. But even that is not as important as our own psychology, kind of what we're bringing to the table, money behaviors, ingrained money behaviors, ingra- ingrained ways of relating to and thinking about money that have really been instilled in us over the course of a few decades. And so it's yeah. one of those, like it does, of course, take time to overcome some of those hangups that we have with money and to, and really to even kind of put a finger on how we got there. So I, th- I think that's why we try to talk about the psychological side of things. We try to bring on financial therapists, something like that. I mean, we really do want people to the, the whole gamut of a healthy approach to money. We want people to consider that, not just yeah. know the max amount you're al- allowed to contribute to a Roth IRA this year totally. and the mechanics yep. of doing it. It's like not we, just about the mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if we were just a bunch of automatons, then what's the point of even yeah. like having a podcast? Because well, here is on a single sheet, everything you need to know, follow these steps and you will be wealthy right. by the time you hit 50 years old. And or, there's you know? some of that, right? Some people need to, you need to know about compounding. You need to be kind of, have your imagination open to what, how it works and, and what it can produce. But that's why the behavioral need, element is so crucial so crucial to understand so i guess yeah i don't know i guess uh, over time i realized that money was like a security blanket for me and that it it was unhealthy and i had to kind of work through that i will also say it's something that i continue to wrestle with sure. and i continue to think about it like that because those experiences from childhood still loom large and so i yeah i i, yeah. I still worry and i have to run like worst case scenario things in my head realizing that well the worst case scenario really isn't as bad and, and sometimes it's just uh catastrophizing in in my own brain and it's like well really well, come on that's unlikely to happen and even if it did we'd still be okay you'd still so. be okay well and this i mean this is a part of why we have the podcast we are saying these things not because we don't know them but because we forget them we have you know when it, leaders talk about mission leak right and how we you kind of lose sight of what it is you're striving after the same thing happens when it comes to some of these different personal finance tenants that we need to make sure that we're living by as as, as well mm-hmm. but okay so one other thing you said too is that it takes time which I, I completely agree. Like, it's something that, you know, it's something that you need to work on over time. You're not just, like, healed, right? Like, yeah, you can't just snap your finger, uh, snap your fingers. But, okay, so my brain's kind of going multiple directions here. <laughs> I think a takeaway, maybe for a lot of folks out here who, unlike Keith and yourself, who, you know, you both have girlfriends or wives that are going through, uh, who are becoming counselors. But there's a lot of folks out there who don't have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and But I still think, and this, I'm not saying that these are the same thing, but when it comes to talking about money with your partner, I think you can do a lot of some of this work with your partner by just being very intentional about some of the conversations that you have. And specifically, just carving out time on your calendar to have some of these deeper conversations, which do take time. 100%. It's, it's relationship, right? And relationships are messy and they're not efficient, but that's oftentimes how you're able to draw out a deeper fear or mm-hmm. a bigger goal out of a life partner that maybe you didn't even realize that they that they had. Yeah. Or maybe you'd heard them mention it before, but you're now realizing for the first time after talking about this some that they're serious. And no, this wait is a second, actually, that makes you tick. Yeah, on so yeah, exactly. And so I don't know. I just wanted to mention that because I know it can be awkward sometimes to talk about some of these. It's like, oh, man, we've we've never talked about money this way. This is this is brand new and it's going to feel real clumsy. But uh, I think it's really important to have some of these conversations, especially when you're when you're trying to get a partner on board financially. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One last thing I want to say, too, on this one. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm reading into this or not, Keith, but it sounded like maybe you you were like somewhat uh, slightly just annoyed at maybe the the diagnoses (laughs) that your girlfriend is is like bringing down on your head or maybe taken aback a little bit by like, oh, man, which I didn't know I had all this going on. It's totally understandable. And I I will say, like, I I am kind of uh, one of those people who's like in- instantly defensive at times and I don't want to necessarily, I don't want to be told who I am what I like d- don't reveal that about me like because it, it hurts or it's 
or it's just a tough thing to hear. And sometimes I would yeah. rather just like close my ears and go la 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 and <laughs> and not hear it. And but it's it's important to as much as you can kind of lean into those conversations because I think they're good for you. They're good for her. And she to be able for her to be able to share that with you and you to be able to have those conversations with her. I think it's going to be mutually beneficial if you enter into those conversations with like a willingness to learn and a willingness to grow. Again, easier said than done. Uh, but the more you can, uh, the more you can do that, I think the, the better it's going to be for both of you. Totally. Yeah. And Keith, you are not alone. I think for those who are like, I never have to deal with that. I think a lot of those folks just haven't spent the time. They haven't been left alone with their thoughts or they haven't worked through it with a partner before. I think there's a lot more folks out there that do have issues when it comes to money and mm-hmm. the how much individuals are relying on that money to feel a sense of security. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just one of those more socially acceptable ways of being yeah. insecure in this world, mm-hmm. right? It's like you, you, you dress it up as like success or right. ambition or workaholism is mm-hmm. another one of those things where it's like, oh, look at that person. They get stuff done. But really, uh, yeah, it's it, it doesn't look the same. and It's not nearly as devastating in some ways as a drug addiction or something else. Yeah. But yep. it's still just uh, it, it, it very much comes from the same root source. Totally. So. Yep. Keith, best of luck to you as you guys continue to have these <laughs> conversations. All right, Matt, we got a, uh, more questions to get to on this episode. Less personal in nature, hopefully, <laughs> uh, but we are going to specifically going to kind of zero in on one listener and his holistic financial situation. We'll get to that and more right after this. Jill, I think there are a lot of folks who start small businesses and they're surprised at the amount of behind the scenes, the admin type work that they're not all that thrilled about getting your books together with uh, with some final figures so that you can file your corporate taxes, for instance. That's something we've been in the middle of. But it can really gum up the gears, potentially keeping you from doing the work you love. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. That's right. Yeah, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. There's a lot of power in the simplification of having all that information in one place. Helps you make better decisions. That's right. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash howtomoney. That's netsuite.com slash howtomoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash howtomoney. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. 
right, Joel, we are back from the break, and we will get to that listener question from the guy who wants us to take a look behind the curtain of all of his finance, like yeah. everything he owns. The full-on autopsy. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like he's he's more typical. So, I don't, sort of like Keith's question. I feel like a lot of times we think that we're alone, and our situations are just uh, just so weird and dysfunctional, or whatever it is. We're all dysfunctional. That, that, you, might, that, you, might, that you might think, but yes, we are all we are all that way. And in particular, I, we're talking about Sean. We're going to get to him in a second. But I'm just trying to function in he, my dysfunction, Matt. His his financial situation is. I think it's more typical than he would actually think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we'll get to him here in a second. But first, let's hear from a listener who's asking about a crazy housing market. Hey, Matt and Joel, Steve from Boston, long time, first time. Your recent podcast on home ownership got me thinking about my own goals of owning a home one day. But as someone in my late 20s, especially in my local market, it seems like home ownership is a long ways away. And there might be some truth to that. In your podcast, you shared a stat that over the past 30 years, the average growth rate of real estate was 5.3%. Well, I did some of my own research and I found that over the same period of time, the average wage growth rate was 3.39%. To me, this comparison doesn't seem sustainable for younger generations to buy homes at the same point of life as their parents or grandparents. But I want to get your take on it. Is this concerning to you too? especially since we know the power of compounding returns. But in this case, compounding returns doesn't work in our favor. Thanks. Uh, Matt, let's take a macro question here. Okay. Put on our pointy economist hat. Wages versus housing growth. Yeah. So usually, H- housing values. usually we're yep. more in the micro personal finance space. But I think this is really interesting because I think the macro often impacts the micro, right? We talk about that too on the show. So uh, we'll do our best here to answer this one, Steve. And it is true that uh, living in a market like Boston, yes, it's going to be more difficult to become a homeowner there than it would be in, let's say, I don't know, Mississippi or parts of Ohio, right? They're, they're just There are a lot of cheaper places in the country to buy a house than Boston. Depends on where you're at in Boston um, as well, right? Sure, yeah. Totally. Real estate markets are hyper-local. But as we said in that episode you're referring to, that specific market matters even inside of a city, even specific locations within that city, or sometimes it's even street to street. Like That's yep. how real estate functions. That's how it works. The, there's just a, thousands of markets, really, uh, across the country, not just a handful, which is surprising, I think, to a lot of people. It is obviously hyper-local. And, and here's the thing, though. The longer you own a home, no matter where you end up buying, the more likely it is to be a solid financial move as well. Time is really key on the home buying front. That's something we maybe didn't... We, we talked about, we touched on on that episode, but that is one way in which buyers can be helped over time as rents continue to increase. If you've locked in, in particular, a lot of those folks who locked in low rates on 30-year mortgages, it is a, a hedge against inflation. But you're right, at the same time, home prices continue to outpace wage growth. So, Matt, what do you think? Like, how do we how do we tackle that as individuals? Well, I, th- I think that's the key point is as, what, what can we do as individuals? Because obviously there's nothing that we can do from a macro <laughs> level. But mm-hmm. as individuals, we have a lot of control over our lives. But I think maybe the best way to discuss this might be to give an example. So Toronto, uh, it turns out that unsustainable housing prices can be sustained for quite a long time. Uh, Home prices in Toronto, they have quadrupled in just about 15 years or so, but only in the the past year have prices started to correct, and they're actually plunging pretty rapidly. Mm. Uh, We don't know exactly how far it will be that, that they'll fall, but what I'm pointing out here is the fact that markets go through cycles, and it is difficult to predict Uh, when those cycles will occur, how it is that they will evolve. Uh, But at some point, any sane individual is going to opt to rent in an environment like Toronto's uh, when it's vastly more affordable and when it just becomes financially impossible to buy. But the thing is that all those micro decisions eventually does have an impact on the macro because when enough people do that, when enough people choose to rent over time, prices do start to correct. Essentially, it's just supply and demand. And with housing in particular, like housing, it's a freight train. It's this massive industry and it takes a long time for things to slow down. It takes a long time for things to ramp up, in particular, when it comes to new developments. And we've seen, um, it depends on who, like what research you're citing, but I 
think there's something like 7 million uh, we have a shortage of something like 7 million homes here in the U.S. And Depends uh, on the stats you read. Depends so on the some stats. Some would say 4 mil, some would yes. say, yeah, whatever. But, but bottom line, like there, there is a shortage. And since the Great Recession, like that knocked out a lot of home builders. And we didn't see that rebound right after that. And so we've been underproducing, as a country, we've, we've been underproducing homes. Uh, and there just is a shortage. And so eventually, as money continues to flow into housing and the in the industries that support it it will correct but again we're not totally sure when well like we said in that episode one of the things you have to consider along the that big long timeline of how wages haven't kept up with home price growth well homes have changed over that p- period of time homes have gotten bigger we the home price growth is, of course it's going to outpace wage growth because it's not just inflation they're fancier products yes right yep. and at the same time covid changed what a lot of people wanted in a home and so especially with work from home that has really i think that is people have uh, a lot of americans have placed more of a premium on their home willing to fork over more of their take-home pay to to pay for lodging because now it works as office space too right yeah. so there's I, been a shift in priorities as yes. to what it is that we're spending our money on exactly yeah so what should people do about this like a housing market that yes it's more expensive than ever to buy a home and it's going to take more of your a higher percentage of your income well one the first thing you could do i think is cry you could just be devastated and uh, I, I get that <laughs> i get that impulse because it is it's disappointing for if you want to buy a home and you're like, this has become prohibitively expensive. Yeah. I, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to be able to afford it. Yeah. And, and we're kind of joking, but we're also kind of not joking. Like, like truly, I think it's worth like mourning the fact that, dang it, the market does truly look a lot different than it used to. Mm-hmm. It's okay to face the, it's sort of like going back to... It might to, require some patience. The, the, yeah. Keith's question, like recognize that this is the, the, the facts on the ground, but also don't let that this larger macro trend perhaps uh, be a distraction as to what it is that you can do as an individual. Yeah. And you can say, listen, I, I really want to buy a house and you could force it. But you wouldn't want to do that at the expense of, of making a decision that's not in your best financial sure. interest. So let's give maybe some um, more helpful suggestion than cry. And uh, also, you know, knowing that wage increases on average won't keep up with home price growth. It's important for you as an individual to find ways to grow your income at a faster clip. So, you know, whether that's moving up the ladder at your current job, going down the the street for a sweet pay bump, that's going to help you sock away more money for that down payment. And another important move, uh, money move you need to make if you want to buy a house at some point is is to be an investor because, you know, if you're still a ways out from being able to purchase a home from being in the market, it could make sense to to invest some of those dollars in an effort to outpace home price escalation with, you know, stock market returns from the money that you're able to sock away. So I think those are a couple couple things to consider. It's like, hey, grow your income, find ways to grow the money that you're bringing in so that home, you know, buying that home becomes more of a reality. And, and hopefully, uh, if the market stalls out, which it's doing in lots, lots of the country, we are seeing home price corrections in a whole lot of places. Well, then you have the, the opportunity, the ability to pounce because you've been paying attention to your finances for years leading up to that point. That's right. But we don't necessarily know that that's going to happen, specifically there in Boston as well. Uh, what will actually happen with U.S. home prices moving forward? I think that's going to be, I mean, that's anyone's guess, uh, because it is just, again, such a complex market. And the truth is that there are thousands of many little markets around the country, and prices are declining in some of those markets, uh, and they continue to rise <laughs> <laughs> in others. But again, that lack of supply is keeping prices higher than many folks have predicted. But then interest rates, they factor into the price of homes more than they impact any other purchase mm-hmm. these days. Uh, but even as it's become more difficult to afford a home in a lot of the country, we just don't see signs of a, a Toronto-esque bubble from what it is that we read and see primarily due to the supply and demand that mm-hmm. we're seeing. Uh, a, a price plateau could certainly happen given the factors, the the more recent factors that we've seen in the past 12, 18 months. But ultimately, markets go through cycles and shifts, and no market can defy the laws of gravity forever. Another issue, too, with looking at very large pieces, like macro data, looking at average wages and average home prices, home values, too, is that you're, you're kind of talking about this early on, but like that ignores the fact that there are certain neighborhoods within a city mm-hmm. and certain streets within that neighborhood. And when you buy a home, you're not buying 
the quote unquote average home. Like you are buying a specific home. It's kind of like the opposite of the what we're talking about at the beginning with new cars and how anecdotally, yes, unfortunately, there might be a time when you have to take your car in and get it fixed, even though yeah. it's brand new. And so even though the, the data points to the fact that home values have been rising faster than wages doesn't mean that you have to buy a home that is more expensive than you would like to purchase. That's why Kelly Blue Book estimates are so much more accurate than Zestimates. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like uh, cars are yeah. from car to car to car. They don't change really very much, but from home to home to home. They're pretty consistent. Uh, yeah, but, but homes are the, uh, the opposite of consistent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We, I mean, I know Back Bay. That's one neighborhood in Boston because that's where Kate and I stayed when we visited there. We stayed in, in Airbnb. It was very nice. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Besides that, other neighborhoods there in Boston. But like here in Atlanta, it makes me think of like the difference between some nice in-town neighborhoods like Inman Park or Buckhead or Midtown, those neighborhoods are so much different mm-hmm. than East Point, than Capital View. And even those neighborhoods you mentioned are different from one another. Oh, <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. So. But generally speaking, I mean, you're talking about if you're taking the average Atlanta home, it's incorporating all of those prices, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are considering living in some of those much, much, much nicer neighborhoods. So it's just something to keep in mind that it's good to see some of the averages, but when it comes to purchasing a home, you're not buying the average home. You are no. buying a deal. You're looking looking for a deal and you're going to buy a specific home that's going to work for you. And I think that's we've seen a lot of migratory shifts in where people are moving and the kind of homes they're looking for and they're they're moving to more suburban and rural areas in order to get more house or in order to to save more money on that purchase and so uh, sometimes you have to look and see where the opportunity is and it might not be in the neighborhood you're currently living in the yeah. Pl- yeah and and if you really if home ownership trumps location for you or those are all things to be taken into into consideration as you're kind of starting to to think about purchasing a home it's a massive, difficult purchase to consider. And the market, the current market in particular, makes it even more difficult uh, for a lot of people. I totally get it. I think there are things you can do as an individual on all these levels, though, to prepare yourself, including kind of preparing financially. And and hopefully, you're able to increase your income and increase your returns by being savvy with uh, with your career and with the money that, that flows into you every paycheck. Yeah, the ability to make those right decisions and have the money on hand to pounce when you see that deal. Mm-hmm. But uh, All right, let's hear from a new listener, and he is wanting to know what he should be doing with his money. Hey, Matt and Joel. This is Sean from Salt Lake City, Utah. So I need your assessment on my money situation. So I'm 40 years old. I make about $3,000 a month netting 2400 roughly um, i invest 300 to 550 per month kind of depending on what bills are coming out of that check and how much the check is and whatnot i don't currently have a retirement plan at my job although i hear that um, upgraded benefits might be on the way recently i started a roth ira and i have $3,200 in there roughly. Uh, in Robinhood, I have about $2,600 with a 60-40 split between ETFs and stocks. And from listening to your guys' suggestions, uh, I've started dumping some money into the S&P 500 the last few times I've put money in. I also have $2,700 in crypto. Currently, I have no savings. Let's see, debt-wise, I have... Uh, about $3,500 in credit card debt, and I owe about $8,500 towards a camper. Asset-wise, I have a car that's worth about $8,000, which I plan on driving into the ground, and I take good care of it, and maybe a few thousand dollars elsewhere in smaller things. Yeah, so just wondering what your guys' suggestion would be on where to transfer my money to or to change it at all just to make sure my money is working the best for me and that I'm doing the smartest thing I can with it. Thanks. All right, Matt, lots to wade through here. I feel like Sean kind of bore his soul, his financial soul, his <laughs> financial did. all. So uh, thanks for all the info, Sean. We'll do our best to give the most robust advice that we can. But and one thing, Matt, first things first, Sean is saving, it sounds like, between 10 and 15% of his pay. Yeah, which, that's, that's really great. That's really good, right? And... By the way, fingers crossed, right, that your employer starts offering better benefits soon, because that can make a massive difference when you think about uh, like something like a 3% match and how that can add up over years and decades. That is, that's not nothing. So I sure hope that, that your employer uh, moves in that direction. If not, I don't know, it might be time to start looking for uh, a place where they have better benefits. Those benefits can add a significant amount to kind of your total comp. 
Totally. Yeah. So, okay. The biggest concerns that I have um, with what Sean has said is that he doesn't have any savings on hand and that he's still got some credit card debt lingering around. We want every How to Money listener out there to be investing, definitely, but only when they've taken care of these two things first, uh, only once they've taken care of some of the basics. And so what I would do if I were you, I would take your Robinhood holdings, uh, the crypto money that you've got, sell that in order to save up that basic emergency fund that we always talk about. And that means getting to at least $2,467 in savings. We didn't pull that number out of thin air. That's uh, a number that economists, that researchers have landed on that is enough to have on hand to handle most kind of small emergencies that the majority of folks uh, are faced with in mm-hmm. life that tend to derail them uh, on their quest to financial freedom. That should be enough for you to weather a bunch of financial storms. It's at least the starting point that you need to hit. Yeah, but then use the rest of any other any additional money that you have on hand to crush that credit card debt. Uh, and by the way, just moving forward, we only want you to use credit cards if you can pay them off on time, uh, if you can pay off that balance in full every single month. We love taking advantage of some of the different benefits. We've been talking about that recently Mm -hmm. that credit cards have to offer, but make sure that you are receiving... you don't want to pay for those benefits right. uh, in the form of interest. Only take them if they're free. <laughs> and they're only free to you if you use credit cards properly the way we describe in the show. And and also, Matt, the money that, that Sean's invested in crypto goes against another principle we have, which is to invest in the basic boring stuff with 95% of your funds. We, mm-hmm. we only want crypto or single stocks or anything to be 5% of your overall portfolio. Mm-hmm. And since you're just getting 5% started- 5% max. 5% max. Yeah. Like you don't, if you don't want to even dab- mess with 5%, you can keep it at totally two fun. and a half. You can keep it at one. Be a hundred percent boring. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, you, this considering where you're at in your investing journey, it's just too early to have any exposure to alternative asset classes like crypto when you're just getting started. And so, uh, basic index funds or target date funds are where you should be laser focused, John. And and I wouldn't stick any more money in that Robinhood account either. That brokerage account. It's just not as tax efficient as the Roth that you're sticking money in. Robinhood does offer a Roth IRA and they're they're actually uh, the the only brokerage out there that's offering a match. So that's kind of cool. If you're going to invest in a Roth and you're going to do it with Robinhood, that's fine. But just don't invest in the brokerage account for right uh, right now because mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're maxing out the Roth before you do any other types of investing. And so yeah, regardless of of where you've got your Roth IRA, preferably with one of the the low-cost companies that we love, plow all of your investable dollars into that Roth instead of the brokerage account in order for you to to basically avoid unnecessary taxation later on. Totally. Yeah. Roth always comes first before any other uh, investable account. But Sean also loved just how you talked about your car, you know, taking care of that thing, keeping that puppy running for as long as you can, running it into the ground, keeping that expense low, which is this is a major expense, transportation. This is going to allow you to then funnel more towards paying off your credit card debt and then ramping up that emergency fund. Uh, but once you've done those those two things, uh, you should resume those regular contributions to to the Roth at that point. And also, I'm not totally sure what the interest rate is on that camper. You didn't mention that. Uh, but if it is north of 7%, that's that's kind of our dividing line. If it is, that, uh, then it would be a good idea to start paying that off more quickly as well. Uh, basically, the, the quicker that you can pay that off, the more flexibility you're going to have to save and invest moving forward. And the balance actually on your trailer is actually pretty high. Uh, and so that tells me that it's pretty sweet, which is great. And hopefully you're getting a lot of value out of it. But n- not just, you know, we're not just talking about financing a car. We also want to make sure that you're, you're not financing any additional fun toys, essentially. So I don't know, maybe you've got the sweet camper and you're also thinking, I need a sweet electric mountain bike to go with that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh man, those things, those things run like $8,000, but I could finance it. No, we don't want you to do that at all. Uh, it's okay. Like we've all got different goals and different things that we're saving up for. It's okay to save up and maybe achieve that as a goal sooner than later. But I, I think ideally you would also have a fully funded emergency fund before you're dumping more money into things that are going to depreciate in value rather than maintain uh, a solid foundation of financial stability. Yeah. And once you pay off the credit card debt, hopefully 
you never have any again moving forward and yep. hopefully you're able to also just grow that gap so that you can save up more for those purchases Matthew you're talking about that's the fun stuff that's the goal is that you're not financing stuff like that especially in today's environment where interest rates have gone up it's like the the less the, the more you can pay in cash the better right so totally. saving up for whatever you're trying to buy but Sean it sounds like you're well on your way you're getting the information and you're making the changes so uh, we wish you continued success man all right Matt we got more to get to on this episode including a listener who wants to know whether he should sell a car in order to pay off some of his debts. We'll get to that and more right after this. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. A big part of being a responsible adult is taking care of the things you care about. For instance, my bike that I ride in to work on. I keep the tires pumped. I keep the chain greased. Gone are the days of leaving your bike out in the rain for weeks at a time, like a kid. (laughs) Simply put, the things futures are built around are the things worth protecting. And making an estate plan now means gaining security of your assets and peace of mind for you and your loved ones. With Trust & Will, you can create and manage a custom estate plan starting at just $199. Go to trustandwill.com slash howtomoney for 10% off plus free document shipping. As the primary breadwinner for our family, I've taken the steps to ensure that Kate and the kids that they're going to be taken care of if something terrible happens to me. Each will or trust is state-specific and customized to your needs. Their simple step-by-step process guides you from start to finish with ease. So get the peace of mind you deserve by creating your estate plan with Trust & Will. Secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust & Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. All right, we are back. And before we get to that question about whether or not a listener should sell his car, let's hear from a listener who's looking for, uh, he's, he's considering this sweet way to avoid the tax man when it comes to real estate. Let's hear it. Hey, Matt and Joel, this is Neil from Texas. I'm selling my home and an investment property in order to purchase a fourplex. One of my sales closed a week ago. The other sale is closing in a few weeks. I'm going to be a nomad for a while, so I don't need the funds for a new home. I want to do a 1031 exchange, but I don't know where to start. What do I need to do to make sure that I follow the rules? My follow-up has to do with realtor fees. I found the fourplex on my own, and I think I can handle the negotiating process. It's selling for $5,000, so the realtor fees would be substantial. Is it common to make a deal with a realtor to work for a flat fee since I've done most of the legwork myself? I only need help with the closing process. I was thinking that if my offer stated that my realtor fee is only $2,000 or whatever is agreed upon, it might be a more attractive offer. What do you think? Thanks for your help and for all the great content. Love the show. All right, Matt, this is a, this is a good question. And yes. there's a lot, to, a lot that we can learn about real estate investing in this one. Uh, first off, though, I think Neil said that he was buying this fourplex for five grand. 
I bet that's not the case. My guess is oh, you meant 500 yeah, yeah. grand, right? 500K. That's yeah. all, that's how we'll think of it. That's my assumption. A $5,000 fourplex would be amazing. You'd be financially independent immediately. I'd buy it. <laughs> same, same here. No matter the condition. <laughs> yeah. No matter the location. Well, depends on the location a little bit. But, uh, Neil, we love that you're upgrading to a fourplex. You're, you're like legit big time landlord now, which is great. And, and even more so because you're looking to do this 1031 exchange, which can be an awesome move when done properly, allowing real estate investors to, to sell a property, snag another other one while avoiding any sort of taxation. But I said when done properly. And that's because the devil's in the details uh, when we're talking about a 1031 exchange. And the price of messing it up, it can be steep, right? It means paying capital gains tax on the sale of that home, 15% of the proceeds for the average person, uh, basically of all the gains you've accrued on that property. So it is it is worth dotting your I's, crossing your T's, and, and kind of getting a little more familiar with the 1031 exchange so that you can proceed properly. Totally. A big aspect of uh, making sure that you perform a 1031 exchange properly is the timing. A 1031 exchange is an incredibly time-sensitive procedure. Specifically, you've got to know the 45-day and the 180-day rule. And so within 45 days of the sale of your current property, you need to have designated a property that you want to purchase, a new property, uh, basically. So what that means is that the clock is ticking and you can't actually be in possession of the excess funds from closing when you make the sale on your current investment property because that money actually, it has to be held by a qualified intermediary. It's typically a law firm. Uh, and it or it can be me. Just reach out. I'll hold on to it for you. <laughs> it, well, it, it can be an individual as long as... So there are, are actually pretty strict requirements as to what the IRS allows to be uh, in a, a QI, a qualified intermediary. So it can't be someone that you have financial ties with. It can't be family. It also can't be an agent. It can't be somebody who you've employed in the past two years. So it can't be like your broker, real estate agent. It can't be a closing attorney. It needs to be somebody that's completely new. And typically there's a fee for holding these funds. Exactly. Because they want to make a little little bit of spread mm-hmm. on doing all the work because there is work involved. You have to, to, to you can actually become, it's almost, I don't know, it's not quite like becoming a not, notary, <laughs> but <laughs> you like you get a qualified intermediary EIN and that's uh, basically like a social security number for employers, an employer identification number. Uh, so there is some work involved with the reporting that they provide the IRS to make sure that there is a clean paper trail and that truly that money has gone to the right person and that you haven't uh, that you weren't in possession of it. Uh, but then the 180 day rule, it stipulates that you must close out uh, on this new property within 180 days of the sale of the old one. Uh, and so it sounds like you've already identified that new quadplex, that fourplex. So you might be able to make it happen within, within this tight window. And if so, congrats. Kudos to you, man. Yeah, you just avoided tax or at least kicked the can down the road for a little while, which is great. That's that's the whole point yeah. is, to, is to avoid that altogether. And, and for everyone else out there, by the way, Matt, 1031 exchanges, they're pretty cool. And they're a great tool, uh, really in the tool belt of the experienced real estate investor, allowing them to kick that taxation can down the road, sometimes even forever. Because uh, in, in particular, I mean forever, if you uh, die owning that home and you leave it to, let's say, a child, that they get what's known as a stepped-up basis. And so taxation can be avoided almost in perpetuity with the use of 1031 exchanges and just real estate in general, which is kind of one of the things that makes it cool. But I would say this too. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. If you can't find the right property, let's say, you know, don't force something just in order to avoid taxation, mm, yeah. right? Uh, potentially buying the wrong property that doesn't make sense for you. So I think 1031 exchanges are helpful when used properly. I think if you uh, allow the 1031 exchange to be the goal instead of a means to the goal, then you yep. might be enticed into using it in a way that's not in your best interest. Yeah, hopefully for Everyone else out there who might have an investment property, you're not just learning about the 1031 and now thinking, I've got to find a way to, to use this tax right. loophole. Uh, we don't want that to be the case. Uh, but then on the, the subject of realtor fees, I think those are most definitely negotiable. I've certainly had realtors offer their services at a, at a discount just because they'll know that I'm going to give them more business in the future than the average person who's planning to just live in their primary residence for the next 10 years. Yeah, real estate investors that, that kind of thing. can often get uh, a better rate just because that agent knows, well, I might be helping this person buy three or four houses in the next three or four years. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I'll also say this, I've, I've been more than happy to pay agents 
full price, full commission. Because the great ones, they're well worth that 3%. Uh, but it's worth asking if they'll be willing to take a reduced commission just based on a reduced workload uh, and the likelihood of more purchases uh, with you being an investor. Uh, you're going to be able to provide them with more business off there in the future. I know that if I was a realtor, I would most definitely be willing to cut an investor a break. Mm-hmm. Joel, let's move yeah. on. Let's get to our last question like for this. Becoming the Costco of realtors, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last question has to do with whether or not a listener should sell his car in order to pay off some credit card debt. Hello, Matt and Joel. This is Armand. I'm calling from uh, Los Angeles, California. I'm a pretty new listener to the podcast. I was wanting to know, is it a good idea for me to sell my car to pay off my credit card debt? A little background is through the pandemic, I use my credit cards quite a bit uh, out of necessity just because of everything that was going on, I uh, wasn't working as much. And so now I find myself in a situation where my credit card balances are pretty high and I'm having a hard time paying them off. I'm basically paying a minimum every month just to make sure that they stay in good standing. But of course, due to that, they're not being they're, the balances aren't going down. And of course, my credit has taken a hit for that reason. I have a 2019 Nissan Altima. I owe about $11,400 and I have about $6,000 in credit card debt to pay off. And through Carvana, my car is currently worth $18,700. So what I was considering doing is selling my car, paying off the remainder of my car loan, paying off my credit card debt, and using what's left of what I sell my car for, along with another few hundred dollars I have saved to put as a down payment on a new car. My only apprehension about doing so is car prices are pretty high, interest rates aren't very low, and of course, I'm a little worried about what I would get approved for. My score is currently around... 570. Is it a good idea for me to sell my car and pay off my debt based on the factors that um, I outlined previously? Armand, thank you so much for being a new How to Money podcast listener. By the way, we used to call it Poor Not Poor. But I'm glad we don't do that anymore because it made it hard to find. Yes. <laughs> uh, but we are glad to have you on board. Uh, but let's talk about what you've got going on here. Um, it's a, you know, we're bummed to hear, we're sorry to hear that the pandemic it messed up your finances. And yet again, you are not alone on that, on that front. I think a lot of folks went through the tough season of life mm. back in starting in 2020. Uh, so don't beat yourself up. You know, that's not helpful at a time right now when, when you're trying to basically right the ship, when you're, when you're trying to take the correct steps moving forward. Um, but at the same time, it's crucial to find a way out of this. You can't continue to make those minimum pay- payments. And selling a car, that is a pretty big step. Uh, it's, it's one that we have encouraged folks to do in the past, for sure. And it could work if you went about it the right way. But there are a few other things that we want you to consider first. Like first things first, how are you going to get around? Like, do you have to drive to your job? Mm -hmm. And if you do, well, then, I mean, you can't necessarily sell this car and not find another one. Selling this car to pay off your credit card debt and then buying a more expensive new one, though, Mm. that doesn't ultimately help your financial situation either. You're you're kicking another can down the road, and you specifically mentioned saving up enough for a down payment, which which means that you're you're looking to take out another car loan, which is going to be more than the one you have now, in all likelihood, given the fact you'd be buying a new car. And that's not something we like hearing. Yeah. Uh, like you said, you'd be paying more. You'd have a higher interest rate. Even if you did get approved, the terms would be massively unfavorable. They'd be worse than the ones you're carrying on the car that you have now. So no, we don't love this plan. That's not what we would suggest. If you're going to sell your car to pay off credit card debt, we'd want you to either go carless, which is hard to do in Los Angeles, of course. <laughs> yeah. You kind of need a car to get around most of the time in that city in particular. Or to buy something much, much cheaper with cash, saving you money each and every month moving forward. But that'd be difficult to do, too, because it sounds like there's not quite enough cash on hand to buy sure. something suitable. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, it's not easy to buy even a used car right now. Joel, you learned that firsthand yeah. uh, in recent weeks. And it would also be different, too, Armand, if you had a fancier car, right? Like if you had a, if you, a few years ago, you had gone out and 
bought a new Jeep Grand Wagoneer for eighty thousand yeah. dollars. Or if that, you were rolling with a Rivian, we'd that, be like, yes, no. that would be a, it. Would be a different story because it's like, yeah, you, you don't need to have that much car uh, compared to what you're dealing with in the rest of your personal finances. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you've got a 2019 Altima, like that's a that's a pretty affordable car in 2019. So technically, that probably means it's from 2018. So that thing is five years old. If you've owned it that entire time, like you've already taken most of the depreciation hit on that vehicle, uh, typically like around 50, 60 percent. And so what more affordable car could you potentially go to if you were buying, if you're going from like no car to one car right now? Yes, maybe we would point you in like towards something that is a little more affordable. But a 2019 Nissan, Nissan Altima is a pretty solid car. Yeah, I mean, it's still in the grand scheme of Armand's finances. That's a big commitment, but it's, yeah. it's better than the alternative, right? And so there, there's just not an easy solution to getting you in a solid car, Armand, to get to and from work while also paying off that credit card debt that involves selling that car. And so the best solution, although it's not an easy one, is to increase your income. And that is, uh, I think, the best suggestion we can we can give. A side hustle is, is probably the best thing for helping you get through this pinch. We, we're we not like uh, hustle culture dudes who want to suggest that people like work for jobs in order to crush their finances, right? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when, when you're in a position like you are, if you can find a way to, to increase your income to help you pay off that credit card debt more quickly and simultaneously keep that Altima on hand because it's a reasonably priced car that yeah. is going to probably perform well for you for years to come. Well, then that solution just makes the most sense. Yeah. Oh, well, and the, I mean, the, the, we talked about this last week, but cutting back, like taking a step into frugality is the most immediate step that you could take. And maybe you have done that, but if you haven't truly gotten serious about cutting back in some of the other things that you're spending money on, I think that could also be that's that's the other lever that you can pull, right? Basically They're, questioning every outgoing expense. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but ultimately, you, you don't necessarily, you're probably not wanting to live a prolonged lifestyle where it feels like you are depriving yourself mm-hmm. of everything. So when you're in credit card debt, uh, like living that monastic existence for a short time period, I think it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like when you have an end goal, end goal in mind, like when you see the light at the end of the tunnel, then it can be a worthwhile pursuit. But living, yeah, sticking with that for a long period of time is going to be difficult. And and with that in mind, it will be important to find ways to, to either increase your income, make some more money so that you can pay more than just the minimums on your credit cards. But if you're not able to do that at this point, right? Like if there's just not enough time left in your schedule, if you are working all the possible hours with no way to increase what it is that you're bringing in every single month, you might want to speak to uh, a nonprofit debt counselor at a at an affiliate of NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, or with a group called Money Management International. We'll make sure to link to both of those organizations in our show notes. Uh, and then, by the way, drive that Ultima for years after you pay that thing off. Once you're able to pay off that credit card debt and you've got a paid off car, then you're going to seriously be ready. You're going to be able to make some big money moves. At that point, you're no longer digging yourself out of a hole. Instead, you're like you're using that shovel to build a mountain (laughs) for for yourself. Most, Most people start in some sort of a hole, especially if you went to school or you've made financial mistakes. Like everybody has to dig themselves out to some degree. And Armand, like you're gonna dig yourself out. You just might need a little bit of help from one of these organizations that Matt mentioned. Those are the places to go. Or you might just need find a way to get a bigger shovel, which is get that get that income up. Heck so, yeah! All right, best of luck, Armand. We're rooting for you, man. All right, Matt. Let's mention uh, get back to this beer that we had on this episode. This one's called Pyrotechnic Pleasantries by Sour Cellars out of. Rancho, Rancho Cucamonga. Cucamonga. Yeah, Speaking right. of California. Say it. Enjoy it. <laughs> well, I pulled it up on the label so I could say it properly. But oh my God. Well, first of all, I want to mention the label because did you ever, have you ever seen uh, the triplets of Belleville? Oh yeah. It's got that style art. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it? It kind of has like, so for everyone else out there, it's a, it's an animated short film. It's a movie, but it's got a very unique uh, style of illustration. It's this French illustrated movie about bicyclists and it's got a bunch of other quirky stuff in it uh, <laughs> as well. Anyway, all that to say, I like this beer. This is a uh, pyrotechnic pleasantries. Joel, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, so this is a, a strawberry sour. So it, it was like re-fermented with strawberries, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a bunch of different beers that they blended together. That they made over the years, which just gave it a depth of character. Oh my goodness. Which was wonderful. I love, so th- they've actually got the blend info on the side there, which I love. For a data nerd like you. Oh my yeah. gosh. I love having this data. So I'm going to go through it real quick. 
54 month barrel aged brown mix culture 12 percent that's like spontaneous that's four and a half years on that beer man. yes 19 percent of a 19 month barrel aged saison and then 34 percent of this beer is a 26 month barrel aged golden so this is like science oh in a my, bottle it's like a science experiment yeah. this is the suicide from a chem lab uh <laughs> but a great beer blender knows how to blend all oh these together gosh. and create something special and they there, really did on this one there's no way that this isn't good for our digestion right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's so it's so tart and very sweet with the strawberry vibes going on i think it could have probably used a tiny bit more strawberry action going on oh you think so but overall i was thrilled with i it. feel I like it had it. the right amount of strawberry uh the, as far as the fruit that was on the nose i feel like it could have used a touch more sweetness because uh-huh. uh, then i think that sweetness would have pulled that strawberry forward a little bit rather than it feel like it was just kind of there in the background but it was really aggressive yeah you know acidic punchy but man i really i did really like it the, like the first sip i was like ooh, that's that's tart that's, that's brash <laughs> yeah it made you pucker for sure but then the more you know as i continue to have more sips i enjoyed it just even more and more oh so it, this maybe is, it was the perfect blend this is one of my favorite styles and it's something that uh I, I feel like because it's it's a finer it's a more specialized kind of beer we don't drink as often and mm-hmm. they're more expensive too so this yep. one i'm glad i picked this up while we were in california while i was in california yeah. brought it back because glad you did it was, well, del- we, it was delicious and we've never had a beer from these guys before yeah. so it's fun to try something from a completely new group of folks for sure yeah all right, Matt, that's going to do it for this episode. We'll put show notes up on the website at howtomoney.com with some of the links that we mentioned in answer to some of these questions. And that's right. By the way, for uh, if you have a, a question you want Matt and I to tackle on an upcoming episode, just go to howtomoney.com slash ask. Send your voice memo over. Hopefully, we'll take it on the next Ask HTM episode. That's right. But, buddy, that's going to be it for this one. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. Hey, it's Matt here for Health Aid Kombucha. This bubbly probiotic tea blended with real fruit juice is deliciously thirst-quenching and great for your gut health. Health Aid Kombucha comes in many flavors like Pink Lady Apple, Passion Fruit Tangerine, and Ginger Lemon, which is one of my favorites since it has that extra ginger kick. I'm a big fan, though the kids prefer the the mango lemonade. It's organic, it's non-GMO, and a great alternative to sodas and other sugary drinks. Just look for the brown bottle with an anchor in your local stores. Give it a try today. Make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. <laughs> I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.